All right, if you got your Bibles, open it to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. As we've been going through the book of Mark, we, one of the things that we've seen is the, the failure of the disciples to kind of comprehend everything that was going on. And we've seen in their failure to comprehend, we've seen Jesus kind of call them out on it. When Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the parable of the four seeds, they didn't understand it. He said, look, how do you not understand this? If you don't understand this, how are you going to understand uh, the other uh, parables? We've seen them react to his miracles in a way where they were shocked, thinking, who is this man? In fact, when Jesus calmed the storm with his, with the, with his mouth, when he calmed the sea just by saying, be still, the disciples stood there in shock and in fear, saying, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? And then what we saw a couple of weeks ago, even after he fed the 5,000, and then he came walking to them on the water in the night, Mark 6.52 tells us, that they did not understand about the low, so they did not understand the miracle where Jesus fed the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples had hard hearts. When everything was going on, they did not fully comprehend everything that Jesus was doing and who Jesus was. And so their hearts had become hard. Let me give us a definition of what hard-heartedness is, just so we kind of are all on the same page. Being hard-hearted means that you have become numb to God's presence in your life. Being hard-hearted means you've become numb to the presence of God in your life. As God convicts, you've ignored it so much that you've become numb so that you no longer feel God's conviction of your sin. You no longer feel God's leading. There are times when um, you're sitting in church and you see other people reacting, uh, whether it's to the, to the worship or, or to the Word, and you see other people, uh, it is obvious that God is at work in their life, and you're just sitting there saying, God never does anything like that to me. Most often it's because we've become hard-hearted, and we are numb to what God is attempting to tell us and say to us. And what we see with the disciples is that's what's happened to them, and it can also happen to us. Maybe God doesn't answer a prayer that you want God to answer in the way that you want God to answer. So you get upset, and you get angry at God, and you never confess it, and you never repent, and your heart begins to grow hard, and your heart begins to grow cold. Maybe you've had someone, a boss, mistreat you or take advantage of you and you let that bitterness rise up and you never deal with it and your heart begins to grow hard and cold, not only towards God but towards your boss. The same thing can happen to your spouse. If you're not uh, confessing and forgiving and loving your spouse the way God has commanded us to love, then, then that hardness can even settle in towards your spouse. I could get hard-hearted towards some of y'all, or y'all get hard-hearted towards me if one of us said something and it wasn't dealt with or forgiven the way God has called us to. When we are hard-hearted towards God, it also impacts our other relationships. And so this morning, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at this idea of hard-heartedness. And the reason why is because what we're going to see with the disciples... Now, let me tell you, we're looking at 30 verses, which is usually... We don't usually look at that that much on Sunday mornings. And we're kind of covering about four different stories, but here's the reason why. The way these stories are laid out, they're all building to a certain spot. And they're building to the point where the disciples finally get it. They're building to the point where the disciples finally realize, where it finally clicks for them, this is who Jesus is. We haven't gotten it yet, but this is where it clicks. And honestly, from this point on, we never see Jesus chastise the disciples or get on to the disciples again for saying, how come you don't understand what's going on? Don't you know who I am? Never happens again in the rest of Mark unless I overlook something. 
They still mess up, and Jesus still has to get on to them, but not because they don't recognize who He is. So I'm not going to read all 30 verses. What we're going to do is we're just going to take basically section by section, and we'll, we'll read, we'll go over it, we'll read, we'll go over it, we'll read, we'll go over it. So I want to read just the first uh, 13 verses, and then we'll stop and we'll pray, and then we'll just kind of go back through the sermon. In those days, starting in chapter 8, verse 1 of Mark, in those days when, a great, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And then they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and then went to the district of uh, Dalmanutha. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that you speak through it. And Father God, as in that, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would challenge, that you would convict, that you would encourage, that you would meet us where we are at. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word and through the Holy Spirit louder than my voice ever could. And God, that you would magnify and glorify yourself in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to recognize the signs of a hard heart. So what we're going to see in these first 13 verses is recognizing the signs of a hard heart. You know, if you go to the doctor, uh, the doctor is going to look you over. If you've got a problem, i got a, I got a problem with my knee. My knee keeps swelling up. It's been drained a couple of times, and it just turns around and keeps swelling up. So I've got to go to the, uh, not the orthodontist, the, the ortho something on uh, Tuesday for, him, for them to look at my knee. And to find out the problem, they're going to look at it, they're going to take x-rays, they're going to do everything that they've got to do to find out what the problem is so it can be fixed. Same thing with uh, any spiritual malady or spiritual uh, uh, fault that we might have. It has to be checked out. There's going to be signs that show us if, something we are, or if this is something that we are struggling with. So looking at the signs of the hard heart, one sign is being slow to recognize God's power and authority. So in the first 10 verses that we saw, we see uh, really a repeat of just two chapters previously. Back in chapter 6 is when Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, the way Mark writes his book, we don't know if this is weeks prior or months prior, but we know it is sometime following when Jesus feeds the 5,000 that he then again feeds 4,000 people. They find themselves in a very similar situation. They are, uh, they've been, Jesus has been teaching these people for three days. Jesus has great compassion on the people as he did previously, even though they were tired when they fed the 5,000. Jesus had great compassion, so he began to teach them and preach them and fed them because he cared for them, because he loved them. But the disciples 
The disciples still haven't gotten there in understanding who Jesus is. Now, you would think that if you saw a guy take a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feed five, or a minimum of 5,000 people all the way up to 20,000 people potentially, if you count women and children uh, that were potentially there, you would think that would open your eyes a little bit to say there's something different about this guy. But they still didn't fully grasp it. In fact, what we see in, in this passage that we just read in Mark chapter 8, when he tells the disciples, look, I can't send them home. They've gone a far way, or some of them have come from a far way. So if I send them off and they're hungry, some of them might even faint on the way home. The disciples say in verse 4, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, Weeks or months previously, they saw Jesus feed more people than this in a desolate place. And here they are asking the exact same question. How is this even possible? Jesus, how can we feed these people? At least this time, they know how many loaves of bread they had and how many fish they had. Last time, they had to go find out. So I guess they're a step ahead. But they still, they're still not thinking, okay, we just saw him do this a few weeks or a few months back. What, why can't he do it again? For whatever reason, they're not putting two and two together. They are, they are slow to understand what God is doing. Now, we know it back in chapter 6, after Jesus walked on the water, right after He uh, had done the 5,000 or fed the 5,000, that we saw that in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. It said that their hearts were hardened. There was a part of them that was having a hard time coming to grips to recognize who Jesus was. They were slow to recognize that He was God in the flesh. They were slow to recognize that He was God come to earth that He was the Messiah. They were slow to recognize everything that Jesus was, even though He had been showing it to them and telling them. They were slow to get it. When we fail to recognize God's work, when we are slow to respond to conviction, when, when it takes God time and time again just to get our attention to confess or to repent or to understand truth, to learn it, to apply it to our lives, there's a chance that there's hard-heartedness in our life. There's a chance that there's something that we don't want to let up, that we don't want to give up, that we don't want to forgive. There's a part of us that might be content where we're at spiritually and we don't want to move forward any, any, any farther. There's a part of us as believers that is struggling with where we're at and following God 100% completely. Look at the disciples. They had given up so much. They had given up their jobs. They had given up their businesses. They had gone to follow Him. For three years, they are following Him step for step, going where He goes, living where He lives, living as homeless people, just following Jesus all over the place. Yet they still, even though they were following Jesus, they still had not committed 100% to Him and the fact that they did not grasp and understand who He was. There was still a part of them that was hard-hearted, that was numb to understanding who Jesus was was. If we are slow to understand or slow to recognize what God is doing in our life or how God might be convicting us or how God might be leading us, we need to check our hearts to see if we're hard-hearted towards God. Or maybe to see if we're hard-hearted towards somebody else. You know, Jesus said, if you go to the, the synagogue, you go to the temple, and you go to offer your offering, and you realize that there is something uh, between you and another brother, then you need to go get that taken care of first before you continue your worship. 
So it's possible that maybe we're not hard-hearted towards God, but maybe, maybe we're hard-hearted towards somebody else. A family member, a fellow church member, a spouse, a child, our neighbor. Someone that, that, that has upset us and somehow and we have not made the grounds of restitution. We have not confessed. We have not asked for forgiveness. We have not done whatever needs to be done. And so there's hard-heartedness in our hearts towards somebody else that is impacting how we respond to God. So if we are slow to respond to God... Slow to recognize His power and authority. That's a sign of a hard heart. Another sign is fighting against or refusing to submit to God's control. So that was the Pharisees, or the, the, sorry, the disciples. They were slow. The Pharisees, flat out, they don't want to submit. The Pharisees came to Him in verse 11 and began to argue with Him, which is what they always do. Seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. So when they say a sign from heaven, this is what he's saying. This is when Jesus says, you're not going to receive a sign. Understand, Jesus has been doing a whole lot of signs. He's been doing a whole lot of miracles. And the purpose of these miracles is to say, look, I am God in the flesh. The things that I'm saying, they are true. You don't believe me? Rise up and walk. You don't believe me? Hey, you dead little girl, get up and walk. You don't believe me? Storms, quiet down. Just stop instantly. If you don't believe me, watch me feed 5,000 people. Watch me feed 4,000 people. If you don't believe what I'm saying, look at the things that I'm doing. They validate the words that I'm saying. They validate the claims that I'm making. The reason why Jesus did miracles was not just to impress people or flex his muscles, the reason why Jesus did miracles was to say, look at who I am. I'm not just saying a bunch of stuff. I'm backing it up with these incredible signs, these incredible miracles that no one else is doing to prove to you I am who I say I am. And here the Pharisees are saying, we need another sign. We need you to do something else. We need to do more proof that you are the Messiah, that you are God. See, the Pharisees had no intention of ever submitting and surrendering. To submit and surrender mean they'd have to give up authority. They'd have to give up control. They'd have to give up power. They'd have to give up respect. No longer could the focus of their lives be themselves, but it would have to be God. They didn't want that. So they fought and fought everything they could to recognize God's authority. And then not only did this end there asking Jesus to perform more signs, and Jesus says, you know what, I'm not giving you a sign, I'm not giving you any more gener- this generation any more signs. Look, if you don't get it, then you don't get it. Basically, they're trying to provide themselves a way out. Oh, well, he didn't do this miracle that we wanted him to do, so therefore he must not be God. He's done all this other stuff, but he didn't do this one thing that I told him to do, like he's my little butler or genie, and so therefore he must not be God, so they could validate their own disbelief. How many people do we know? Or how many people are in this room? Or how many people did this used to be you? That you had a struggle with God for whatever reason. And so you tried to validate your disbelief in God any way you could. Well, my mom or dad were sick and I prayed that God would heal them. And he didn't. And so he must not be real or he must not love me. I asked God to, to fix my marriage and my spouse still left and, and, and she didn't want to work on things or he didn't want to work on things and they still left. And so uh, I prayed and asked God to fix it and he didn't. So therefore, he must not be real. We are surrounded in people. In fact, there are people in this room who either are or used to be that person who was fighting against God who was fighting against God's authority, who was fighting against God's control, who said, I do not want to submit to God. I do not want to give God control of my life and salvation because I'm the king of my life. I'm the queen of my life. I'm the boss. And I'm not giving that to anybody else. 
Ultimately, that was the Pharisees' problem. They wanted control, and they did not want to give it to God. So they fought against God, and they argued against God being Jesus, and they tried to justify every action they could to prove that they weren't doing anything wrong. They had hard hearts. Now understand, what we're going to see through this is God is bigger than hard hearts. God is big enough to soften the hardest of hearts to draw people to Himself. Remember uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who ended up coming to God and believing. Who ended up coming to God and, and recon- or coming to Jesus and recognizing who Jesus was. And he was one of the ones that, that helped take care of Jesus' body after he died. God is big enough to soften the hardest of hearts. So whether it's a family member that you know or a friend that you know that is just hard-hearted towards God, maybe you're in this room and for whatever reason you are hard-hearted towards God. Understand that God loves you and God has no desire for you to stay hostile towards Him. God wants only what is best for you. In fact, that's going to bring us to our next section, that because God loves us, He confronts our hard hearts. Let's look at verses 14 through 22. Now, They had forgotten to bring bread. It's kind of silly, right? They had just collected all this bread left over from these people, and they forgot to bring any for themselves. So anyways, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And of the seven, or and the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? They're in the boat. They're arguing about bread. Who's Basically, how are we going to cut this up? How are we going to share it? We didn't bring enough bread. What are we going to do? So Jesus takes this moment to, to give them a teaching moment. Look, you're talking about bread. So let me just warn you about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod, he's talking about is that self-centeredness, that self-righteousness that, that invaded the lives of the Pharisees, that invaded Herod, called Herod to, caused Herod to kill uh, all these babies because he did not want to lose his throne. Uh, called Herod caused Herod to kill his own family members because he did not want to lose his throne. The, the, the Pharisees were arguing against God. They were arguing against Jesus because they did not want to give up their authority, that they were selfish, they were self-centered. And so he's talking to them as they're arguing about this bread. He's trying to make this a teaching point for them. He says, beware. Beware basically the self-centeredness of the Pharisees and, the, uh, and Herod and make sure that that does not enter into your life. Make sure that that does not take over your life. He gives them this warning, and then they continue to argue about the bread. They continue to discuss that they don't have enough bread. Once again, they have kind of missed the point. They have kind of completely overlooked what Jesus was trying to tell them. Their refusal to see from Jesus' perspective led to their hard heart. Part of growing in our faith is... Making that transition from seeing things from our natural perspective and looking at things through the lens of Scripture. To see things how God would see them. 
It's, it's when we're in a marriage and, and your spouse does something to upset you. Naturally, my response is, I want to get back. If Jessica makes me mad, my response is typically, I want to make her bad back, mad back. I know that's very mature and not childish at all. But that's just how my flesh reacts. It's either that or I, I get pouty and I don't want to talk to her for a couple days, which is even more mature uh, than trying to make her mad back. And so that's how I naturally want to respond. But if I respond through the lens of Scripture, if I look at things the way that God would look at them, then God tells me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. God tells me to forgive others as I've been forgiven. God tells me to love others the way that Christ loved me. So if I'm going to apply that to my wife, and I'm going to look at things from the perspective of Jesus, then I have to forgive my wife. In the same way, my wife has to forgive me. Because that's what God has called us to do. That's who God has called us to be. So I can look at things from my perspective, which usually ends up in leading me to more and more sin. Or I can look at things through God's perspective, which causes me to love as God loved, live as God has called me to live, to forgive as God forgives, and ultimately brings us back together, ultimately brings restoration to our marriage and to our relationship. The disciples could not see at this point from Jesus' perspective. As Jesus is trying to teach them, as He's trying to show them and apply them to God's Word. Remember, as Jesus spoke, because He was God, He was speaking God's Word. As He is trying to show them and apply to them and teach them God's Word, they're like, huh, that's neat, Jesus. Now let's get back about this bread. Who gets this slice? Who gets how much? How are we going to divvy this up? And so Jesus calls them out on it. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Jesus loves them enough to to make them confront this fault in their life. Jesus loves them enough to make them confront this sin that they have not yet confessed, this hard-heartedness that they are not or have not dealing with. Jesus reminds them through the the talking about the, the bread, remember how much bread you took back. Remember what I did. I took those five loaves. I, I, I spread it out to feed thousands upon thousands of people. Remember what I've done. How are you not getting this? Jesus is not saying this just out of desperation or frustration. He is saying this because he's got these 12 men and he knows that he's going to use these 12 men to impact the rest of the world. 11 of the 12 men. Judas, we don't count him because he betrays Jesus and ultimately uh, kills himself. Uh, but uh, these 11 of these 12 men he's going to use to impact the world historically in an incredible way. And he's saying, look, I've got what is best for you. I, I want what is best for you. I've got this plan for your life. All you've got to do is open up your eyes. Do you not have eyes to see? Do you not have ears to hear? Why are you hard-hearted? He's not getting on to them because he's upset with them. He's getting on to them because he loves them and he wants what is best for them. He wants them to open up their eyes and to see who he is and to see what he offers. If you've been here on Wednesday night, we've been going through the book of Galatians. And the whole book of Galatians, at least so far from what we've seen, the first four chapters... Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia saying, look, you've bought into a false gospel. You've bought into all these lies. And he's calling them foolish Galatians. He's saying, look, I think I've wasted my time with you. He's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it because he says, I want what is best for you. I want you to understand what God has for you. And the fact that you keep going away from that is is frustrating, but I'm not giving up. In the same way, Jesus does not give up on us. When we struggle with hard-heartedness, when we struggle with sin, if we are His children, He will never give up on us. He will be at work in our life, drawing us back to Himself. 
the reason why he is confronting them with this fault is not because he's trying to play high and mighty with them. It's because he wants them to understand who he is because understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us and how much he loves us and how much the Father loves us by sending his Son is the greatest thing that we could ever comprehend and understand. And Jesus wants them to know that. So he confronts them with this sin. He confronts them with this hard-heartedness. And he reminds them who he is and what he has done. Now, as we examine our hearts to see if we're hard-hearted or not, to see if we're leaning that direction or if we have any potential to go that direction, there's some questions that we can ask ourselves to see if we are hard-hearted or see if we're even leaning in the direction of being hard-hearted. These aren't necessarily in your notes, or they're not in your notes. But um, first is, where is our focus? Where's the focus of your life? Is the focus of your life God honoring Him, glorifying Him? If that's the focus of your life, then guess what? You're probably safe from being hard-hearted as long as that stays your focus. Because if God is your focus, then ultimately you're going to confess, you're going to repent, you're going to obey, you're going to do whatever it is that you need to do if God is your focus. But if anything else rises above that to be the chief focus and the chief desire of your life, then the potential is there. And here's why. God will never let us down. The Bible says that for all who desire... Or, um, sorry, wrong verse. The Bible says um, that God works all things for good for those who love God and are calling to His purposes. If we're focusing on God, if we're loving God, if He is the one that we are basing our lives on, His authority, His kingship, His word... The Bible says that He works all things for our good. Now, we might have to go through some rocky spots. He might have to get on to us now and then, or He might do something to, to grow us, but ultimately God works all things for our good. And God never fails because God is God. Anything else that I rise up or raise up to put in that position because it is not God will always fail. Whether it's another relationship, whether it's money, whether it's a job, whether it's a position, whether it's how people view me, whatever it is, it will always fail and it will always crumble under pressure because it is not God. So where's our focus? What do we value? Similar in sense, but it's a little bit different. What do we value? What, what do we put the most worth and value in in our life? Once again, it has to be God. It has to be Jesus. It has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be uh, knowing that, that, that He is worth more. When we say He is worthy, that means He is worth more. He has more value than anything else in my life. If I'm going to properly love my wife, I have to love Jesus more. If I'm going to properly love my children, I have to love Jesus more. You know why? I'm showing you all all my flesh right now. I've already told you how I respond to my wife. My kids, when they, when they, they ask a million questions or when they disobey, my response, I want to get frustrated. I want to yell. When my flesh wants to come out, it wants to be sarcastic. It wants to be mean. That's not good when you're trying to raise kids to be sarcastic or be mean to them. But that's my flesh. And so if I'm... Loving anything other than God first or focusing anything on other than God first. And I'm not going to love my kids the way that I'm supposed to because I'm going to react out of my flesh. Now, there might be times when I do what I'm supposed to do, but ultimately that's what it's going to lead me to. But if God is first, then through the Holy Spirit, I've got the power to love them even when I'm frustrated, even when I'm annoyed. I've got the power and the self-control not to yell, not to get frustrated. I've got the, the self-control to watch bubble guppies 10 times in a row instead of watching something on ESPN. And not just pull my, my, my hair out, what little bit I've got. Because I'm loving God and following God first. 
And third question we need to ask ourselves is, are we humbly confessing and repenting? And I can tell you this 100%. If you are not confessing your sins, then your heart will grow hard. It just will. If we are not confessing and repenting of our sins on a consistent basis, our hearts will grow hard towards God or towards other people or ultimately probably both. All right, let's get moving on to the next section. We got about 10 minutes. All right, next we're going to see that God is patient towards those struggling with hard hearts. Verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethesda, or Bethsaida, sorry. They came to the Bethsaida. And so people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he spit on his, uh, on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he wasn't seeing very clearly. Everything was still fuzzy. Verse 25, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His, when he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, to the, uh, and he sent him home uh, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, Last week, last week we mentioned how uh, sometimes when we see a miracle happen in Scripture, it's there to illustrate something else that's going on. It's there to illustrate some of the, the previous passages or the things that God is teaching, or things that Jesus is teaching, or the things going on. That's exactly what is happening here. Now, understand, this miracle happens... Jesus has just gotten on the disciples. Jesus said, do you not understand? Do you not see? Are you, are you, are you hard-hearted? Do you not have eyes to see? The next section we're going to look at, they finally get it, and they finally confess who Jesus really is. So this miracle happens right in between there. And so we've got this man. Now, Jesus is powerful enough. He could have healed him one time. He didn't have to, to do it twice. But the fact that he does it twice, the fact that he heals him once and, and his eyes are still a little fuzzy. He can still see a little bit of stuff. He sees people walking around, but they're not clear. He says they look like trees. And then he does it again and then he's healed completely. What I believe Jesus is illustrating here is the patience that he has, especially towards the disciples specifically, but the patience that he has towards those who are struggling. Those who are struggling with that hard-heartedness or struggling with their disbelief. You see, the disciples gave up so much and they followed Jesus and they had been around Jesus and they'd been getting glimpses of who Jesus was, and it, but it just wasn't clicking. So that's kind of the first time Jesus takes his hand off the, off the man's eyes and things are, are, they can see, but it's a little fuzzy. They still don't get the whole picture. They still don't understand everything that's going on. And leading into the next passage that we're going to look at, as Jesus heals the, or puts his hand on the man's eyes again and takes him off and everything is clear, finally things are about to come clear for the disciples. They're finally about to grasp. They're finally about to fully understand who Jesus is. Things are about to become perfectly clear for them in that area. The reason why Jesus, or the reason why Mark records this miracle in this spot and in this moment is see, I believe that he is showing us God's patience towards us as we struggle with belief. Whether it's struggling with belief at the point of salvation, maybe you're in this room and you're not a Christian and, and you've heard the gospel a million times and you're still, you're still wrestling with, is this true? And, and can I give my life to him? Can I trust Jesus? Can I trust God? What happens if he fails? Or what will other people think of me if I do this? And you're struggling with that belief. I believe that God is patient. 
I didn't, I didn't respond to the gospel the first time I heard it. It took me hundreds, if not thousands of times of hearing the gospel before I finally responded in faith to the truth of the gospel. God was patient. You might be in this room and you are a Christian. And yet there's still a part of you that is struggling that God didn't work in this situation that's the way that you wanted Him to. Or, or you've gone through things that were unfair. Life has dealt you a difficult hand at times. And you're struggling with, can I still believe God? I believe that God is patient. I believe that God is big enough to ultimately show you that you can. And I believe that God is patient enough to let you wrestle and deal with that. And He doesn't force it upon you. But He says, here I am. Just remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember my goodness. Look at my word and see who I am. And ultimately, if we do that, that vision is going to become clear. I believe this miracle was put in here by Mark in this exact spot to illustrate for us God's patience towards us. And then that our spiritual vision gets clearer as we mature and draw closer to Him. The more we're willing to recognize who God is and who Jesus is and how much He loves us and how much the Holy Spirit works in our life to pull us closer to the Father and the Son, and we begin to realize that that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. We begin to realize that He is more powerful and awesome and worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives than anything else. Then the more we begin to understand who He is and the thought of following Him, the thought of doing what He has commanded us to do, the thought of giving our lives to Him, the thought of trusting Him when life is difficult, it makes more sense. And it's something that God begins to change us into the where not only does it make more sense, but it's what we want to do. He begins to change our hearts. He begins to change our desires. He begins to build our faith. And that spiritual sight, looking at things from God's perspective, it begins to change. And we quit looking at things from ourselves so much. And we begin to look at things the way that God would have us to look at them. That spiritual sight, that spiritual perspective begins to grow and become more clear. See, God didn't give up on the disciples. And ultimately, the disciples, they still still stuck to Jesus even though they didn't understand it. They still stuck to Jesus even though they were scared when He could quiet a storm with just saying, be still. They were scared when they saw Him walk on water. They thought He was a ghost. They were terrified. But they they stood with Him because even though they didn't fully understand everything, they understood that there was something different about Him and something worth giving their lives for. So they might not have clicked everything until just now or begun to click everything until just now. But there was a part of them that says, I don't know what's going on 100%, but ultimately, this is someone that I want to be with. You might not understand what's going on in your life 100%. But ultimately, trusting God, He's the one that you want to be with. He's the one that you want to stick close to. He's the one that you want to follow. So here in this last passage, we see this. That hard hearts soften as we acknowledge who God is. Look at verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say the prophets, one of the prophets. So they were saying, You were good men, good teachers, you're a prophet, but that's about it. Verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It is in this moment, as Peter makes this declaration for the disciples, that Jesus is the Christ. This is not just... uh, 
they're not going with what everyone else is saying. Other people are saying that you're a prophet. Other people might be saying that you're Elijah who, who's come back from heaven. People say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what everyone else is saying. That's what everyone else thinks, that you're just this really great person, this really good guy. They're kind of seeing things with the, the fuzzy eyes. They, they see that there's something great about you, but they really don't get what it is. So he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. Now understand, this is not just a recognition of who he is in title, but in position and authority as well. As he says, you are the Christ, he's not saying, hey, you're just this guy. Uh, He's saying that, look, you are God in the flesh. You are the promised Messiah. You are the one who's to come to bring freedom and victory over ultimately sin. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. You are the one who deserves control of our life. You're the one who's going to sit on the throne. You're the one who is the king of all creation. You are the Christ. As he makes this statement, he's not just making this statement, In fact, he's saying that, look, you are the Christ and we are giving our lives to you. We understand that you're not just a prophet, but that you are so much more than that. And not only do we make that statement about who you are in fact, but we also make that statement that we are living for you as the Christ. We are surrendering our lives to you as God in the flesh. We are surrendering our lives to you. We understand who you are and we understand that you are the best thing we could ever want. And we understand that being with you is greater than being with anyone else. Not only did they make this statement as fact, but they made it as a statement of saying, we understand your power, we understand your authority, we understand your control, and we want to submit to that. We want to follow you. We want to love you and be loved by you. You know how we know that? Read the rest of the book of Mark. No longer are there discussions of, do you not understand this? Every other time that Jesus has to get onto the disciples, they're arguing, who gets to sit next to you uh, on your throne? Who's your favorite disciple? Who do you love the most? Who are you closest to? I want to sit on the right of your throne. I want to sit on the left. They understood who he was. They still had their sins to struggle with. They still had their stuff to wrestle with. But they understood who Jesus was, and it changed everything from here on out. Their hearts were no longer hardened because they understood who Jesus was and they surrendered their lives to Him. How do we deal with hard hearts? We look to who God is as presented in God's Word and we surrender our lives to Him. That means we have to confess our sins to God. That might mean that we have to confess our sins to someone else. If I have hard feelings towards somebody else, if I have a hard heart towards somebody else, and I have to go to them and say, look, I've been hard-hearted towards you, and I'm sorry. That's what God's expectation is, and that's how our heart begins to soften. When we can be humble enough to admit our sin and admit that we need forgiveness from God and from other people. So, maybe you're in this room. Maybe you're in this room and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Like I said earlier, you've heard the gospel a million times, but you've never submitted to Him. Understand that God is patient. Understand that that God is still standing here saying, this is truth. This is God's Word. This is God's standard. God loves you, and He wants to draw you to Himself. He wants you to respond in faith to the call of the gospel. He wants you to be saved. You've got to understand and recognize who He is. And then if you're in this room and you say, you know what, I'm a Christian, I know that I am, but I'm struggling and with hard-hearted towards a spouse, towards a coworker, towards a neighbor, or ultimately towards God Himself. The answer to this is the same answer to anything else. You confess to God and you repent of your sins. 
You tell God that you're sorry. You confess to God. You agree with Him that you have a hard heart. You ask Him to forgive you. And then you make whatever amends need to be making with that. If you need to go to someone and confess, go to someone and confess. If you need to go to someone and apologize, go to someone and apologize. Whatever it is that you need to do to get your heart to begin to soften, to get things right back with you and God, we do it. That's how our hearts become soft. There's no magic secret. There's no magic mumbo-jumbo that we have to say. All we do is go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then if it's towards somebody else as well, to go to them and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Thankful for who you are. Thankful for your love and your grace and your mercy and your compassion. Thankful that you are patient with us when we struggle to understand who you are 100% and completely. And Father God, I pray for everyone in this room as we have this time of response. Father God, I pray that you would help us to respond obedience, respond in faith. God, respond recognizing who you are. And God, um, that you are greater than any, any bitterness that we're holding on to. That you're greater than any unbelief that we might be facing. And God, that you would set our focus, set our gaze, set our vision towards you. God, we love you. We thank you. I pray that you would work and move as you see fit, and we would respond in loving obedience. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.